Hello and welcome back to the Why Comics Podcast. Uh, while we're here to talk about comics that impact us, I'm your host, Jesse, and with me today are the creators of a new comic book coming out. I don't know, do you guys like to call it a comic book or a graphic novel? Comic book, graphic novels, a bullshit made up turn, popularized by movie studios at the end of the 20th century to try appeal to comics to people who don't like comics. So it's adult, it's a graphic novel. Fuck you, <laughs> Will Eisner. Well, then it's a new comic coming out called Everyone is Tulip. It's Nicole Go Agu and uh, Dave Baker. See, I always ask if how to pronounce names and I still screw it up because my brain's like, nah, just say it the way you were thinking it before. <laughs> yeah, it's understandable. I mean, you know. French names, right? It's got an X in it. What? Yeah, how dare they? I know, right? How, how dare they use the rest of the alphabet that we yeah. are scared to use? That's what I'm saying, man. Stick to the stick to the stick to the consonants and the and the vowels, but never the X. You just the X. We don't need that. How are you guys tonight, though? Good, good. Just all uh, right. Yeah, excited to talk about tulip and shoot the shit. Yeah, so yeah, last night I sat down at this computer and I was like, okay, I'm going to read through all everyone's tulip. And I did not expect it to go as existential as I thought it would go when I was oh, reading it. Oh, right. Because like, I'm alone I'm like alone in this house with the lights kind of off and there's a dog next to me. And I'm like, oh, man, every, what, what's the point? <laughs> what's the point of what we do sometimes? Yeah, what is, what is life? Am I right? Uh, so uh, for anybody who doesn't know what this book is, we, I uh dave you reached out to me before it came out but now is it out right yeah the, the book come officially came out in in bookstore bookstores today uh tuesday july 20th um and uh it's been really really positive a lot of people have been tagging us and stuff on twitter and sending me dms going oh man it's so good also holy shit it is so much darker than i thought it was gonna it's, be it's very dark <laughs> i was not expecting you, you when you pitch it to me it's like oh this seems like a nice kind of slice of life type thing and like it is technically a slice of life and and i guess uh today's social media stars um it, it very specifically like uh art, artists like poppy who are very uh, obscure and um the the drama surrounding her and her manager and stuff like I, I like I'm I'm guessing that that's kind of an inspiration for this right all of that drama. Yeah, I mean I think the you know the the book started because Nicole and I uh, we we got very interested in these types of people these kind of like new wave influencers that were predominantly doing performance art online or you know yeah. a couple of years ago and so there's a small cadre of them there's like Belle Delphine. Poppy, don't hug me, I'm scared. Doll Vita, and a couple other ones, and and those those people, uh, we found them very compelling. And Nicole started just kind of drawing stuff that was kind of in that line of mm-hmm. you know couture outfits and um, kind of the the weird color schemes of some of their videos. Like these people have such a keen sense of branding that you can tell a Belle Delphine video just from the palette. You know, you can tell. And it's, it's funny now that there's like imitation because the internet moves so fast that there's yeah. now another wave of people who are all imitating those people. But the people that are now following this second generation don't even really know about the first generation. So they don't realize that they're copycats. Like there's a woman in Russia named uh, Alice Delish and she's beat for beat Belle Delphine. She wears the wig. She does the same videos as Belle. She does... Um, she's, she's not making hardcore pornography, 
but that's because yeah. she's at the beginning of her journey. Give her two years, <laughs> then, then the, the internet will suck her into a vortex, I'm sure. And, and it is interesting too, because like, as you talk about the generations don't know where anything's coming from. Um, I am getting closer and closer to my thirties and I'm like, man, I am, I'm so I'm starting to feel that disconnect in some ways, but I noticed how separated like platforms like Twitter and TikTok are like, yes, they have crossover with people sharing videos on one or the other, but um, at, like the stars on both or the stars on YouTube or on the stars on Twitch, like they're, they're so disconnected. And when they try to cross over to another platform, it, Sometimes the audience comes with, but most of the time it feels like the audience stays where they are because they're comfortable on that platform. So they don't see each other's like overlap. They don't see each other's uh, copycats on each platform. It's very fascinating to watch that. Yeah, it, it, especially because each platform has their own modality of algorithmically served content. So certain platforms favor long form or short form or um, just literally have algorithms that function in a very different way like TikTok you don't have to have a large following to go viral because the algorithm shows a video to a small component like 200 people if enough of them watch it all the way through then it just goes wide and it shows your video to millions of people whereas something like Instagram that is you know now just kind of trying to keep up with TikTok because it's been completely taken over their algorithm functions based off of followers initially where it shows your video to a certain number of your followers and then if it performs well there then it will show it to a larger percent of your followers and a larger percent of your followers not just crazy amounts of you know normal you know, people that are just on on their platform so you're not getting viral organic reach in the same way and all of the social platforms have their version of that kind of duality it's very very yeah. Very interesting, and as someone who is trapped in a hellscape of them, not always fun. Uh, for you, Nicole, like he, Dave talks about how you were just sat, sat there starting kind of designing those multi-panel pages where you do so many uh, costume changes for uh, Tulip. And what was the idea coming from those doodles? Were you guys like talking about these characters at the same time as the idea was forming or were you kind of just separate, like both separate watching these people and like, hey, this is, this is strange. Maybe we should do something about this. Oh no, we were definitely having conversations the whole time where, you know, like I would find someone and be like, look at this, look how weird this is. This is so kind of surreal and strange and the color palettes are so cool. Um, and you know, it came from these drawings where I was like, oh, this is just weird. I, I want to draw this person or these couple people. Um, and then it kind of morphed into, well, what if we made a book about this? Look at these weird characters. What's the difference between these characters and the, the real people behind them? What are their lives like? And it just kind of morphed generation after generation of, you know, us mm -hmm. talking about it um, into what it is now because it started out kind of a, a little bit different of more like a kind of break from self-identity and, and reality um between the character and the real person and it kind of shifted into what we have now which has some of that but is more about what these people go through what the system is like what it takes to um make something and what you have to sacrifice in order to get to the top all of those sort of themes and for 
the story too because like when i was when i first started reading it i thought this was going to be a very straightforward like corruption of a, a youtube or internet celebrity and it quickly turns into like what do you leave behind um it, it feels mm-hmm. like the real message of it all like who do, who do you leave behind when you pursue your dreams and kind of what do you leave behind when you achieve those dreams like of yourself and um for for you two i feel like this would be a very personal story too because you're both artists in your own right and so i'm I'm curious like when you're writing this how much of your personal life did you pull into it too because i know a lot of it's influenced by the internet and the stuff around the internet but there's such a personal story when it comes down to it yeah i think um you know the the book is about a young woman from arizona who moves to los angeles to try and become an actor and then gets sucked up into this high stake world of YouTube performance art, and then has to reckon with these ideas that we're talking about, you know, who do you leave behind? What compromises are you willing to make in order to get to the next level? What are your, what are your goals and how do your goals shift? How does that, you know, ever expanding horizon just keep moving away from you, regardless of how rapidly you climb the, 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 you know, the, the ladder as it were. And, you know, I think I'm originally from Arizona and that's something that people have pointed out of like, oh, is Becca kind of like a stand-in for you? And no, not really. Honestly, like (laughs) the character being from Arizona just means I don't have to do research about Arizona. (laughs) Like it's really the existential autobiography elements are there where, you know, Nicole and I constantly reckon with taking publishing deals at companies that might not have our best interest at heart or, you know, um, are we willing to work with uh, a convention that has notoriously screwed people over? Have we, uh, you know, are we willing to uh, make variant covers for books that we know are going to court the speculator market, even though we need to, we need those monies to survive, but also like, how does that factor into the greater history of comics? Because we all know what variant covers and speculator interest did in the 90s. Um, and so like, or, you know, are we willing to option a book to this production company or, you know, all there's, there's, you never, you never really have a, a complete understanding of what you're getting into. And then you just have this kind of like rosy view of what things could be, which a lot of our characters in the book have. And then they're over the course of the story confronted with the various realities of um, their given medium. And there's a small nucleus of characters. It's not just Becca. There's, you know, four, four or so characters that are all experiencing various versions of these questions. Um, and that was something Nicole really helped develop. You know, like we've had lots of conversations about these questions of how far are we willing to go? And we went through multiple drafts of the script and she really, you know, contributed an immense amount to the story, both of just like the idea and massaging those, how do these characters interact? How do they, what is the right level of depressing and dark? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like there's a very easy way that this, uh, uh, what, what's, what's the best way? I read the last issue of that, the miniseries Ha Ha Today. <laughs> like that, mm-hmm. that ends in a very extremely dark place where this story could easily have also found itself. Mm-hmm. But I, it, it's, it's interesting to see kind of how ambiguous the story ends. I'm not, not no spoilers for the whole thing, but just kind of how 
you can kind of see it as maybe like I don't know about you guys, but for me, I saw it like a couple of ways that it could be taken. Um, and I don't know if you guys yourselves like you have a set idea of how what what the meaning of the end is, or you yourself are like, well, let's just let this go on the internet like the internet does, or go out into the world and let people interpret it, kind of like how Tulip is as a character. Like no one really knows what it is, so let's just let them interpret that. Yeah, I, I think that I think Dave and I probably have a pretty clear idea of what we think it means, but. Um, that is open to interpretation. And I think, you know, whenever a creator has a certain idea, that kind of doesn't matter in the long run because people are going to take that and run with it and read their own interpretations into basically anything that's ever been created. Yeah. Um, so whether we have an idea of what we think it means or not, at a certain point, it doesn't really matter, you know? Yeah, I think that there's a... Um there's certain themes in the book that kind of reverberate out and hopefully ask the reader questions. Um, and I think those themes are universal. Like, I think some of those themes relate to comics, but I don't, I don't know that they all do. I think, you know, we live in a world now where everyone is performing all the time. Everyone's, every thought is documented and put on the internet for all time. Um, and I think that that fundamentally is altering the way humans exist, you know, like there's a, there's a version of this story that is just kind of like social media, bad <laughs> people experiencing life in the real world. Good. Put yeah. down your phones. And that's not cool. at all what the book is. And that's not a story that I'm interested in telling because life isn't black and white. Um, and it's, it's, it's less you know, us commenting on the societal rot of Twitter and more us discussing like, this is what the world is going to look like for the foreseeable future. How do we all exist within that paradigm in a way that is the least damaging? Yeah, talking about your guys' characters and how you don't kind of just let them be black and white like it could easily go like there, there's very easy ways for I think every character in the story to be very black and white and pick a side of things um the one I'm thinking about the most is probably the the, the worst character of course in, in the the whole story but um oh gosh what is his name Stanley yeah Par paradox XL paradox. The, the the director of the videos that Becca stars in yeah yeah like he he's clearly the the ends up being the worst character of the story in a lot of ways but there is you, you give senses uh, hints and senses of like he still wants to make something that means something to someone and means something to him and he does but he just doesn't know what it is um he's he's very much that kind of artist that feels like they <laughs> they feel like they're important but they don't know why they're important and so they're trying to figure that out mm -hmm. and um and i guess that's a sense of pride that kind of befalls him in in a lot of ways that makes him end up being kind of the bad guy but that prideness feels like it, it it kind of infects anybody around him or anybody he involves yeah i mean for me there's a lot of those people in art school did you have that when you were in art school nicole um i don't know i went to like a, a regular csu art school so the people there were <laughs> marginally less pretentious 
Um, but I think it exists. You know, there are lots of people who are striving to be great. They're striving to be these geniuses, these creators. And, um, you know, some of us have it and some of us don't. And I think when you are someone who really wants to reach that pinnacle, but you just don't have the insight or the life experience or the quote unquote genius. I don't know if I really believe in genius, but there's this kind of grasping for something bigger with like a lack of any like source material, like to mm -hmm. create something meaningful. And I think that that is where Stanley's story is actually really kind of sad where like he really wants to reach these great heights and say something important, but he just kind of doesn't have anything to say. <laughs> yeah. Which is, you know, obviously ref reflected literally in that the character is constantly quoting famous artists but trying to pass those quotes off as his own. And um, like, I think, I hope that that is an apparent trope with that character, but I'm not even sure that it, it reads as, cause it's not like it's a wink, wink, nod, nod to the audience. Like there's just in conversation within the book, he is, a lot of his dialogue is just cribbed from famous artists, like full on and not even like subtly. Like, I think I literally, I think I typed um, famous artist quotes into Google or something. And like, I just took the top 50 and put them in various places in his dialogue. And there's a certain point where he gets called out for it. But for the majority of the book, it, people just kind of think of it as like, oh, that's Stanley being a pretentious artist or whatever. Like they don't even question that what he's saying would be someone else's thoughts, which is kind of, again, going back to this theme of, the internet flattens everything and compromises inherent. How far would you be willing to go? And for Stanley as a character, like he's maniacally dedicated to this idea, but the only thing he's doing is just recycling other people's ideas because he wants it so bad that all of his time and effort is dedicated to um, not developing his own vocabulary, mm -hmm. but uh, amassing things that he thinks have a substantial probability of succeeding, you know? Um, yeah, he's definitely one of those guys that had a word of the day calendar in like high school and always try to fit that <laughs> word in conversation at least once. Completely, yeah. He's like a what Cubby, uh, Albert Cubby's uh, seven effective habits of highly effective people or whatever the fuck those things are. Those planners that we, we would be given in high school be like, yeah, hey, you got to you got to have a word of the day and you got to journal and you got to, you know, take care of your body and you got to do all of these things, which is just like, what would I do all day? Uh, you know, what would I do if, if I did all of these things that are supposed to make me a more well-rounded person? Cause this is like a hundred fucking things, dude. Like this is crazy. Yeah. And he, and he's definitely one of those guys that feels like he's helping people when he's definitely hurting them, but he can't see that he's hurting anybody. He's like, Oh, everything I do is for the good of them, even though it's just for the good of him. Um, and I, and I think all of us have kind of run into those people in our lives at some point. Uh, I feel like they're quite common. Um, I, I love though, when he, uh, he says something that he thinks is, super, uh, profound and everybody around him is like, uh, what, <laughs> what, what is, <laughs> what's the context that you're talking to us right now? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of that, a lot of those, you know, the character molding stuff, happened between Nicole and I where I kind of 
you know, there was probably a draft of this story that was a little bit more uh, loopy, you know, like originally we had talked about it being kind of like Perfect Blue or Millennium Actress crossed with maybe like Fight Club or something where, you know, there was an actual like social media version of Becca that was Tulip who was like taking over her body and doing stuff. And, you know, over Nicole and I's conversations, she was the one that was like, you know, it really needs to go more in this direction. It really needs to be more about like the internal struggles of these things as opposed to the kind of in more cliche, like how do we make it external because it's a movie version yeah. of things. Yeah, you, you got there's uh there's flashbacks that you put throughout the the um the comic book that really emphasizes her kind of running away from the problems of life and kind of pursue dreams in the and having those problems in the background never really leaving just in the rear view haunting in a lot of ways and i think that's why i I appreciate them so much Uh, especially like the color choices for those flashbacks how they're much darker and more heavily toned uh than um than anything in the present day um what made you guys decide to go in that kind of way with those kind of, with those flashbacks well the color which the colorist on this book is ellie hall and she's amazing um she did a really great job um she and i had a lot of discussions kind of up front on the book of what we wanted to be what we wanted to co- the color to mean i i had initially done i think like eight pages of um sample art and I did colors on that. So some of this stuff was sort of set up in the beginning. Um, but the the kind of like heavy purples in the flashbacks is essentially our version of sepia tone. Mm-hmm. But it is, it is that and it's literally like, look, this is in the past. But it is also um, there to kind of set her life before this apart from the other aspects of her life. So we have these three different color styles. We have the dark purple kind of bland mauve monotone flashbacks because that's how she feels about her life in Arizona it feels boring and sad and um she did everything that she could to get away from that life and then we have her you know everyday life in LA which while in reality is probably not that much better than her life was in Arizona. She feels like it's better and exciting and brighter just because she's not in that place where she felt so stuck. Um, So that is sort of like a, it's the most naturalistic, but it's kind of this pinkish tone overall um, and has much more local colors and you kind of feel like you're living in that world. And then there is the world of the videos, which is represented by this kind of um, vibrant blue color and that is a runner through the whole book of any time the internet or technology shows up, we use that color to represent this sort of different aspect of Becca's life. So all of the stuff in the videos is this really ethereal, light, um, vibrant, bright color. Um, So I wanted the three kind of versions of Becca, the three different parts of her life to feel really separate. And And Ellie just did an amazing job of making that come to life and her execution just was fantastic. Yeah, and Nicole, I want to talk about your art for a second, how uh, wonderful it works for this kind of story, too, because the way you portray the characters and the, the, the surroundings and the backgrounds and everything, it makes it feel like a fairy tale in the same sense of, like, things that, uh, like, a, like a children's book in some ways, but 
because it's modern and everything it feels like a modern fairy tale only on your art alone like the story itself is very modern it has very modern language very modern dialogue but your art gives it that sense of wonder and whimsy to kind of carry you through it and i think it's a very uh not magic but musical the way that the art flows through the book yeah i mean a, a lot of that is inspired directly from the videos that we were watching at the time you know i i've done several different styles and different books that we've worked on this is the first full color thing that we've done um without i guess i've done some shorts uh, with full color stuff, but I really wanted kind of going into it to think about like, what is the feel of these videos and how can I make that feeling come to life in the pages? Um, and that's a really hard thing to do because these videos are moving and they're short and they have sound that goes along with them that, which is really effective to make, um, you feel a certain way. And how do you express sound on a page? It's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I did the lettering myself. So there's some stuff that I tried to do within the lettering that was hopefully representative sound. But it's funny that you say musical because I was very aware, especially with the sequences that are the actual YouTube videos of how do I make this feel like those videos sound? Which is a crazy thing to think about, but yeah. <laughs> I did my best. Yeah, and like re I'm, I'm, I, I read it as a PDF, so it will definitely read differently if you have the book in your hand or you're reading on a tablet. Mm -hmm. But the the scene, the it's it's a little bit of a spoiler. So heads up, you can just skip like thirty seconds. But the scene where they need to spice it up a bit and she throws up blood, mm -hmm. it's such a shocking thing because it's on multiple pages, at least from my reading. So when you're reading it, you see it happen. It it trails. It follows you, and so having it be on multiple pages i love how it just makes you sit with it for a, just a tad bit longer than it would if it was just on one page <laughs> yeah i mean dave and i talk a lot about kind of the pacing of comics and um denseness of pages so there are certain pages that are really dense nine panels more panels than that sometimes and then there are places where you really want to sit with a moment and that's one of those moments where i think that's in the script it had maybe one spread possibly two and then I was just like hey I want to I have this idea I want to add this extra page of this you know floating blood stuff or whatever <laughs> and I think that you know that helps you sit and think about what's happening and why it's happening for just a second longer I mean when when people read comics they read them so fast it can be very frustrating for artists because we spend hours and hours and years on these things and then you read it in an, an hour or whatever. But that's my way of saying like, you have to sit with this longer. This is important. Think yeah. about this. <laughs> How much symbolism did you guys try to not hide, but kind of stuff into the book? Because I don't think much of the symbolism is hidden. It's very in your face. And if you're not picking it up, I think uh, you need to reread it a few times. But it's it's so full of it though in a lot of places and i'm so curious like how much you guys discuss like what kind of uh stuff you wanted to fit into the art itself and kind of like how much of it it's kind of left on the ground floor um i, I would say that one of the main themes is you know theft and the idea yeah. of theft and appropriation and um how that can either be a compromise or a way of life and 
I'm trying to t- tread very carefully. There are there are quite a few moments that have that idea laced within it, mm-hmm. which I think is all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm like, well, how much should I say? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that like that is definitely in there and Dave and I work very collaboratively. So some of that stuff is baked in from the beginning, from all the discussions that we've had before we started making the book. And then some of that comes in the making of the thing where I'll be working on it for a couple of months and Dave will have an idea or I'll be working on it and like, oh, this page would be, it would be really cool if this composition was this and that would mean this or that. So that stuff is kind of like Dave said, laced throughout because it comes both heavily thought about beforehand and then also just kind of discovered through the making of the book. Um, and that's both Dave and me. So, you know, he takes what, two, three months to write it, but his job doesn't stop there. Yeah. We're talking about this the whole time and thinking of new ideas and adding pages. Um, so it's a, it's a very, there's a lot of back and forth. Yeah, talking to a few writers and artists who collaborate together, and you guys seem to be very intertwined when it comes to the how the story evolves. And like, it, it's very nice to hear that kind of relationship between creative duos because it's like sometimes it's just here's the script, okay, here's the art for the script, and you kind of just go with that. But it's very fun to hear the development together because it it makes the story to feel more intertwined. Does it feel the there's no there's no disconnect between the words on the page and the art that way. And you never feel that in this at all. There's there's very very many books that I feel the disconnect when I'm reading versus the art and, and, and the writing. And so uh, I, I want to just, as a, as a very uh, avid comic reader, I just want to show my appreciation of how natural the whole book feels. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure everyone listening to this knows that the reason why comics are produced in a conveyor belt system of a writer and a penciler and an inker and a colorist and a letterer is because they started out um, as literal sweatshops. Like comic books started because the mob needed content for their their you know uh, rum running enterprises. So they found a bunch of poor Jewish kids and had them work in this bizarre manner where you have you know each little component of a process split up so you can accomplish a lot of output very quickly. Um, you know, the Eisner Iger studio that Will Eisner uh, co-founded uh, is obviously one of the, the, more, the more famous comics sweatshops. Um, it's referred to usually as a studio, but you know, that shit was a fucking sweatshop. And, um, and so, you know, that way of making things means that there's this kind of conveyor belt, churn it out, journeyman way of doing work. And I think there can be good work done by that. But if you look at a lot of the work that was produced early on in the history of the medium, and then you look at, you know, somebody like Fletcher Hanks, who also worked at the Eisner Iger studio and also later worked at, um, oh gosh, what's the name of the comic book company that put out Jungle Comics and um, the, the comic book called Jungle Comics, not just generic comics about the jungle um but he yeah it uh they during world war ii they had a predominantly female staff and uh he wanted to say first comics but that's a company from the 80s whatever it it doesn't matter that that company he worked for them and most people were part of teams and he did everything himself he wrote 
drew and lettered all of his own work. And, you know, he was an alcoholic piece of shit who beat his wife and died alone on a park bench. But goddamn, fucking uh, Stardust, the Super Wizard, and Phantoma are some of the most batshit, idiosyncratic, cool comics ever made. Like, it's like if David Lynch made a superhero movie. Like, it's they're so good. And if you haven't read Stardust um, or, or Phantoma, please, please go uh, check them out. Because even though he was a repre- reprehensible person, um the the work he made is just like transcendent and um that's the type of work you get when you don't have a journeyman attitude which is hilarious because he was like trying to create the next superman but his idea of the next superman was a guy who like turned people's intestines inside out and blew their faces off with his fingers like (laughs) it's so weird um but like that's i think that's maybe one of the reasons why yeah and it's very flattering thank you for saying that um and and a couple people for these interviews that we've been doing have said similar things of like, Oh, it kind of feels like one person is making it. Um, yeah, it really does. And that's, uh, that's the highest compliment to me. Like that, that to me is, um, that means we've done our job because the, the goal is to have Nicole and I kind of fade into the background and the, the work itself becomes something greater than its parts. You know, the whole be something, you know, cause you know, science is one plus one equals two art is one plus one equals three like yeah you know that's that's kind of how i approach a lot of this stuff is like you know you 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 say up front one plus one is three and then you spend you know as your like thesis statement and then you spend the whole work proving that one plus one is three and by the end of it hopefully the reader leaves going wow you know i kind of feel like is is one plus one three i I was sure it was two but now i don't know um and so when we get comments like, you know, it was, it felt like it was a single mind making it, that, that to me means that we've, we've succeeded. Well, I also feel very grateful to be able to have that working relationship with Dave because, you know, I've worked on several other things where you don't even get to have a conversation with the person writing the book. A lot of these systems, uh, studios are are set up to kind of be a barrier between you and your other collaborators which I don't I just don't understand why you would want to do that um but there are a a lot of these books especially in the direct market or kind of only in the direct market stuff where the writer never gets to speak to the penciler never gets to speak to the inker never gets to speak to the colorist and um I think that it's very difficult for those creators to make a cohesive thing when they don't get to, you know, talk to the person that they're working with. Even stuff where it's like, I did get to speak to someone and we had a good relationship. A lot of those times I've still just handed a script and said, hey, do this, you know, um, with, you know, a little bit of back and forth here and there. But because Dave and I form these ideas together and because he knows what I like to draw and writes for me. And I know basically based on our conversations, what the idea is going in. Um, I think it really makes the thing, there's a l- very little conflict in our creation of a thing because we've had so much discussion about what it is before it even starts. Yeah. That we can really just kind of make it. And I know what he wants and I know what he's expecting. And Sometimes I don't care because I'm like, this is what I want. <laughs> um, but uh, it also gives me as a an artist 
an immense sense of ownership over the thing that I'm making and the idea, mm-hmm. as opposed to this idea of an, an illustrator who just fulfills what's on the page on the script, which that's never really the case. That's not how that works. But I think there is this idea of person writes a script, illustrator just does what the script says, um, which is you know a false equivalent anyway. But being able to create idea an idea from the ground up with a collaborator, it is just, I'm so grateful for that. Yeah, and having such an open communication between the two of you helps find those walls and limits and uh, hard breaks a lot faster than <laughs> trying to call someone like, every other week saying how's those pages coming along pal mm-hmm. yeah yeah like there's there were multiple prod uh points in this project and in the the next book that we made that hasn't been published yet which are were kind of like you know i, w- I would kind of say like okay I'm, I'm picturing it like this mm-hmm. i think is this sound cool to you and then nicole would take that and just make it something 150 times better um and sometimes i specifically like we Nicole draws poignancy and kind of quiet moments of sadness better than anyone I can think of. Um, And so there's a lot of those kind of setups, you know, like obviously you need a story with the beginning and middle and end and a first act, second act and third act. But you, for me, like I approach those things thinking about like where the sweet spots are, right? Like where, you know, there's that Sean Cunningham quote uh, for when he was talking to writers for, the like fourth or fifth uh friday the 13th movie and he was like look if somebody doesn't die or have sex every seven pages you're fired and so that's that's kind of how i approach these things where it's like looking for every x number of pages for opportunities to make space for the various stylistic flourishes that i know nicole likes yeah um because that's how you get transcendent work like there's it's so funny to me that there's like this prevailing thought in a lot of comics readers minds that the writer is the auteur of the medium which couldn't be further from the truth like uh, the writer if they're doing their job right is the scotty pippen they're the the person that's going to be there for the rebound they're the person that's going to set up uh the main you know star to do their best work nobody in their right mind is reading a comic book for some captions and some word balloons. They want to see some cool fucking drawings and they want to have sure a story or an emotional experience, but all of those things are filtered through the art. And so that's why it's so important to me whenever I'm working with an artist, um, you know, I, I, I think the same thing could be said for my, my other book that recently came out night hunters with Alexis Zirit of, of tarantula and space writers fame. Like that book is worlds away from tulip because i sat down with him and i was like all right dude what do you want to draw what is it that you feel like you've never been able to go ham on like i will make a story that is a vehicle for you it's almost kind of like in the 80s where there were all of those movies starring stallone and schwarzenegger and chuck norris and and uh Charles Bronson where there was just like an army of people that were like okay how do we make a story about Charles Bronson yeah uh I don't know he's an architect who his wife gets uh, murdered so he goes to Arizona and buys a gun and comes back are we really gonna believe that Charles Bronson's an architect don't worry about it don't worry about it he's gonna be murdering people within like the first 15 minutes of the movie it's cool it's cool it's cool um and like leaning into the strengths of those performers that have a very narrow window and 
it's that's to me writing comics is finding the window that your illustrator likes and then building something inside of that um to to facilitate them um and it's not a completely selfless act obviously like i you know obviously i have creative input and vision too but it's not it's not like an auteur in a in a traditional like you know Truffaut sense where it's just like everything is his vision it's like yeah comic doesn't work that way unless you're the one holding the fucking pencil it's not your fucking vision yeah and letting each other kind of breathe like that i think is what makes the idea go like i, th- I think about uh, like the best example in my brain is like the new gods kirby stuff and that's so much a company saying you know what <laughs> you are such a legend just do it like do whatever and it like yeah it didn't sell because it's, it was so weird for the time but that stuff is so bonkers cool like it's some of the coolest stuff that you could ever look at um and i think letting like creators breathe and like th- th- thankfully independent market's so big now that so many other creators can do this and hopefully find collaborators like you guys have found each other to let each other breathe while you're making this book let's let's it be so vibrant and lived in and just compelling all the way through thank you um before we move on though i need to tell you i don't know if you know this or not jesse but yes do you, do you know the reason why new gods didn't sell and why it got canceled i'm assuming it's some shenanigans from the publisher like always uh it is but not what you would expect so the the real story behind that is you know he leaves marvel they give him four titles new gods forever people mr miracle and jimmy olsen's uh, superman superman's pal jimmy olsen and he mm-hmm. makes the fourth world out of it and those books were wildly popular. So what happens? The mob comes up. I, I'm not making this up. The mob comes up with a return racket because the way the newsstand comics worked is that you could order books. If they didn't sell, you rip off the cover and send them back. So the mob opened up a bunch of newsstands and had a bunch of newsstands. They ordered all of the New God stuff because they knew that Kirby would sell they ripped off all the covers and sent them back claiming they didn't sell and then just sold them without the covers. So there's like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of the run that didn't get accounted for properly because like the Chicago area mob was just like strip mining Jack Kirby. <laughs> what, a, what a fascinating uh story early comic i mean modern comics is very fascinating in other ways but early comics is always so fascinating yeah and it's also just like whose idea was that like was it like you know fats malone is a big combo guy and he's like ah look look so listen here shani this jack kirby guy he's got it we should rip him off she like wh- whose idea was that uh my next kind of uh question i want to present to you guys like you talk about how uh all these characters like you wanted to make important in a lot of ways um is there any of them that you yourself leaned into heavier like heavier than the others because um I, I feel like with any kind of ensemble cast like there are parts of you in all of them um probably for both of you but I always always for me when I write it's like there's always one character that's much more me than all the others mm-hmm. I kind of think I kind of think they all have bits and pieces of us in them you know, to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are characters I think I like more than others, but I wouldn't say, I mean, and maybe Dave, you, you wrote them, I guess you could say more clearly, but I don't think that there is anyone who 
is just Dave or just me or mm-hmm. even just someone that we know, you know, because a lot of them are people we've had experiences with or heard overheard at a coffee shop or, you know, that all comes from mind experience. There's the, the coffee shop conversation is really funny because there's this, there's a sequence in the book where Becca goes to her first kind of like Hollywood party. Yeah. And that is, I mean, one that's inspired by parties that we've been to where I've been there, you know, with the callous purpose of networking and finding creative people to link up with and yada, 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 yada. But it's, it's specifically an homage to a thing that happened to us where we were in a coffee shop across the street from Nicole's house. Do you remember that story, Nicole? I'm going to need more than that. <laughs> right. We, the, the rising tide. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. Yes, of course. You want, do you want to tell the rising tide story? I don't know if I'm going to be able to tell it as good as you. I, All right, I, I'll tell it. I'll tell it. I was just trying to be polite and give you an opportunity to, <laughs> to, to wax poetic, but we were, so we're in this coffee bean and tea leaf across from Nicole's house. And there's these two guys sitting behind us and we're just there. I think we're just drawing. I don't, I don't think we're doing anything crazy back when you could go into coffee shops and draw. Yeah. And, and there were these two guys behind us and they were having a meeting and, um, we we had we were having a conversation so i didn't hear the beginning of it but like we got quiet and we're just drawing around the time that one of the guys who is kind of like a more heavy set dude was pitching his screenplay to the other guy and my assumption is that the other guy is an actor and the other guy is a screenwriter mm-hmm. and so they're they're talking about it and he's pitching this story of a tsunami that happens in new york and it takes over New York, New York gets flooded completely. And then the story's about these two brothers, one who has superpowers and one who is a cop. And they they end up on like opposing sides of some issues having to do with this tsunami. And it was just so, like this guy was pitching, man. It was earnest. He was like, my life depends on this pitch. So I don't know what the context of that was, but it was hilarious from an outside perspective. Like he was like, so we, we started joking around that the title of the movie was Rising Tide. And yeah, after we left, obviously, we weren't like mocking this guy as he was pitching. <laughs> That'd be horrible. But that kind of weird L.A., you know, he's kind of being sort of cheesy and cringy and he's kind of acting stuff out. And he's also saying like really weird self-involved stuff. Like my cousin works in Amazon. I'm sure he can get us into a meeting with the head of development for live action features. You know, like that kind of like these weird, like you're shooting for the stars and you've, you, in order to believe in yourself that much, you have to put aside that little voice that says like, be humble, just be humble. Like you, you almost can't be humble in these situations because there's, 50 other people who have already learned that lesson are, and are their own biggest fan. Mm-hmm. And that conversation was just so weird. It was so weird that there's this scene in the book where all these people are kind of saying weird things to each other at a party. Like one girl goes, yeah, this weekend we like drove up to Ohio and I put avocados all over my whole body. And like, it's like it's just there's so much surreal shit that happens in LA and none of it is treated as as surreal it's all treated as like of course this is what everyone does everywhere it's like I I don't know that that's true my guy I don't I don't know that that's how the 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 rest of the world functions um yeah I mean raising tides as we have named it uh 
was hilarious and and ridiculous but that's just one of like 50 examples I could name of you know there's a coffee shop near us called bricks and scones which is a literally a place where executives and, and producers and, and writers go to either work or to have meetings or to do all those things. And every time I have ever gone to work there, there's someone at the next table or three people at the next table talking about their new project or this or that. Dave and I went for a hike the other day and passed someone who was like talking about, oh, what does he do for a living? Oh, he's a producer and blah, blah, blah. You, It's unavoidable in LA. So that stuff is sort of just pervasive. And I think that they did a really good job, particularly with that scene of kind of emulating what that's like and how kind of ridiculous that feels. Uh, because everybody, when they're you know in it and doing the thing and talking about whatever it is, their next project, it feels very real and very serious, but from an outside perspective, because everybody's trying to do the same thing, there's kind of this lunacy to it it just feels silly <laughs> yeah yeah like we're talking about the dave your original pitch of it kind of being like millennium actress or perfect blue how surreal those stories get uh you kind of don't need that when it's set in la just because la is such a surreal place to people in general like the the fantasy and the the sparkle of it all kind of like blows your mind when you come visit um since I, I'm, I'm a california boy myself like every time i go down to la i was like this is this is intense <laughs> yeah it's it's very strange and i mean as much as i'm bemoaning the weird things about la i i really love los angeles like the, the thing that's so funny to me is that i i really as much as i'm kind of mocking that guy for his weird shitty tsunami superhero movie um i love that that happens here where i'm from nobody's trying to do anything nobody's trying nobody's attempting nobody's risking at all and they might look like a douche but they don't care yeah like here everybody's trying something there's that bus boy with a screenplay there's that uh bus driver who's a dancer there you know it does it's every person here has not even a side hustle that's the thing everybody has their day job and then the thing they really do where in other parts of the country people have side hustles side hustles don't exist here day jobs exist here and yeah. that's such a amazing beautiful kinetic thing to experience daily because you know on a on a bad day you're just like god all these people are fucking pretentious this is so fucking annoying but on a on the rest of the time you know they're in the in the in the doldrums of trying to you know, uh, get through traffic or, or, uh, you know, get off the bus at the appropriate time. Yes, I do take the bus in Los Angeles, but not for the last year because of COVID. Um, the, the sheer number of people who have stars in their eyes metaphorically gives me a real sense of existential joy. Like it's very, very uplifting to me that I live in a city with millions of people who've all put aside conventional safe bets in order to pursue what they feel is their inner truth like i just i think that's just the coolest scariest most beautiful thing ever and um i think that's maybe one of the reasons why tulip is so dark because it's not it's not a screed it's not an indictment of something it's an observation of what it takes to do that 
you know, like it's not all bad and it's not all good. It's uh, it's this this gray area that there are no right answers. That that's what's compelling to me, you know. Yeah, for sure. Um, before we uh, wrap up, I have some quick fire questions that kind of uh, uh, poke your guys' brain a bit more. Uh, one of them is this is very heavily inspired by YouTube. There's an opening page that has a bunch of recognizable YouTube videos on it mixed in with some fictional ones. Um, who are your guys' favorite uh, YouTube channels to watch? Nicole, I'll let you go first. Oh. Um, I got like real white girl answers. I'm sorry. Oh, you're totally fine. <laughs> it's a little embarrassing. Um, I do yoga on YouTube a lot. So yoga with Adrian, who is, she has like 5 million followers or something like that. It's one of my favorites. And then I have um, a bunch, I just started uh, roller skating. So I have a bunch of like roller skating, how to people that I watch. Um, there's a channel called, I think it's called Groovy Skates, um, which is great. And it's, um, you know, just like a, this one main, uh, girl and then uh, they bring on like a bunch of other people to kind of like show you how to do skate moves and stuff um so those are i do that and then you know of course chill beats <laughs> <laughs> gotta have them chill beats baby gotta have it. um yeah i mean those are i have a bunch of stuff i watch out. lots of star trek convention stuff yeah i noticed the star trek documentary in there oh yeah oh yeah uh ds9 convention uh panels and stuff yeah, we we constantly text to like, oh, did you see the the new uh, the new uh, DS9 reunion panel from Gen Con twenty two two years ago went up? Well, you should you should check it out. There's a really good anecdote where uh, Nana visitor tells a hilarious story about Avery Brooks. It's great. Like that's 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 the exciting repartee that's happening in our uh, text message chats. We we live thrilling lives. I, oh man, it's I, it's, it's totally hard to talk about Deep Space Nine with anybody, in my opinion. So, uh, <laughs> more power to you guys. <laughs> yeah, and for me, I I watch a lot of like film analysis stuff. I I watch a lot of comics criticism stuff. Um, I love Power Comics. If you guys haven't watched any Power Comics videos, you should. They're really cool, like obscure self-published comics from the uh, late '80s, early '90s, and these two guys. Uh, have collected just this immense collection of these weird self-published books and they do live stream reviews of all of them where they'll go through page by page and sometimes like you know it's literally you know a hundred people bought this issue and it's just been lingering the back of a quarter bin or whatever and they're shedding light on all these really cool weird books um, I also watch a lot of the 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 official Toei channel um, if anybody's unfamiliar Tokusatsu is a genre of Japanese cinema that is like people in rubber suits and monsters and like Godzilla or Super Sentai or Kamen Rider. And the the company that produced a lot of that stuff, Toei, has a YouTube channel where they've been just uploading all their backlog um, and it's subbed in English, which is really fucking cool. Um, and then, of course, I, you know, I watch stuff like Strip Panel Naked and Cartoonist Kayfabe and... Oh yeah, Monben. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. So, if anybody's uh, unfamiliar, Monben is a show. Um, it's a Japanese TV show, hosted by hosted by Naoki Urasawa, where he interviews mangaka uh, as they draw. So basically, it's 
they set up a camera for two days in their house and film them working on whatever they're just naturally working on. And then they take two weeks off and then Naoki Rosawa and whoever it is um, get together and watch the footage back and discuss it. And it's basically inside the actor's studio for Mangaka. That sounds um, super cool, actually. <laughs> oh, man, it's fucking great. Like, and there's it's super weird, too, because like the Mangaka get to choose the environment that they meet in. So like there's a, a Junji Ito one where he chose for them to film in a cat cafe. Nice. Um, there's a Ryuki Ikigami one where he, you know, he's a little bit of an older cartoonist now. If, if you're not familiar, he's the artist behind Crying Freeman and the original 1970s Spider-Man manga adaptation and hundreds of things. I'm, I, me, by me saying Spider-Man, that's almost insulting to him. He's like on the Mount Rushmore of, of uh, 80s manga for me. And um, Crying Freeman is the big one. But he is, you know, getting a little older and he's self-conscious about how he looks. So his condition was he'll be on the show if he could have an animated head over his head every time he's on screen. Okay. So, so he drew these like weird chibi caricatures of himself and they like after effects them onto his body. So he's just, it's just footage of him talking and, you know, being, you know, a super cool dude, but you know, I guess he doesn't want to be perceived as a grandpa or something. So there's just like these drawings of his head floating over his head. It's amazing. It's so, it's so good. Um, but yeah, I can't, I can't recommend Mon Ben enough. That was a good poll, Nicole. Nicely done. You know, uh, I think that was yeah. Wait, what did you say? Sorry, Nicole. It's, it's all dubbed in English on Urasawa's website now, which is yeah, Because it was all subtitled before on, on YouTube. I was going to say, like, hearing you guys' uh, selections, like, I, ha I feel like I have to recommend something to you two now that I hear what you guys like. Uh, Nicole, did you like the the beats? Uh, have you ever heard of a channel called Nemo's Dreamscape? No, I haven't. It, it's, it is one of those, like, music channels that plays, like, live streams and stuff, but it's always, like, retro music in another room with, like, sometimes the fire going on, sometimes rain. Oh. It's, like, very relaxing. <laughs> that sounds perfect for working. Um, and then... Uh, Dave, for you, like you, since you watch a lot of film analysis, have you ever heard of a channel called uh, the Royal Ocean Film Society? <laughs> no, I have not. Looking it up right now. That uh, he's become one of my favorite film analysis, and it's always like it's, it's put me on so many obscure things I've never thought about. Maybe it's just obscure to me because I'm still like finding my feet in an older film. But yeah, it's it's very fun stuff. Oh wow, yeah, this looks really cool. Um. The next question I have for you guys is uh, when you finished the book, it's a very heavy book. Did you guys both feel a little bit closure when you finally wrapped it all up and sent it off? That's, that's a weird one for me because every time I finish a book, particularly now that we're working with publishers, um, there is so much time between finishing a book and having the book actually come out. Mm -hmm. that this is something I'm working on kind of, in my own mental state but there's never a really like one point of I'm done we did it because when I finish the book it's not out for another six months so it's it's not really out it's not really done we're not really finished with it but then by the time it comes out in bookstores oh it's been done for like six months I'm not I don't feel as kind of excited as I would expect to feel. And it's something that I'm actively trying to kind of like, you know, the book came out today actually in bookstores. And so 
Dave and I will make an effort to take a trip or go out to dinner or do something to mark that occasion and celebrate because if you don't mark those things, you kind of live in this swamp of just work and yeah. never, never take that moment to be like, hey, we just finished a like 170 page book and it's getting put out by Dark Horse and like probably thousands of people will see this. And this is like a life goal for both of us, you know? And it's very easy because with comics, I often say there are no true wins in comics, particularly because of the way that the industry is set up and the way that the publishers function and all of these, there's just always something where it's yeah. never perfect. It's never that like true, true win. And so sometimes it takes a little bit of effort to be like, hey, that thing we did, that was really cool. <laughs> um, so I wouldn't say that like I got closure from when I finished drawing the book. Uh, but I think now that it's out, I'm making a kind of concerted effort to be like, hey, we did this. And that's that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for me, I... Um... I don't know. It's so weird because we've been working on it for so long that like, I don't know. I don't know if I have, I don't even know if I have closure yet. I think I'm still processing it mm -hmm. because yeah. for me, I think, you know, Nicole, uh, Nicole's famous. Nicole worked on Batgirl. Nicole's, Nicole's the reason this book got greenlit. Um, you know, and, and for me, We've done a lot of work together, but a lot of it has been on a, a very small independent level. Um, and that's not to say that there's, that's bad. It's just a different beast yeah. when, you, when you know, oh, fuck, like this book is going to change somebody's life. Like this book is going to be out there. Now, I'm, not, I'm not saying that like our book is so amazing it's going to change someone's life. I mean, somebody's favorite movie of all time is The Day After Tomorrow. You know, like if you put man, that joke landed fucking flat. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? Like, like putting work out into the world, it's going to meet people at various stages of their life. And somebody on planet earth, there's like 8 billion people, somebody. Six. six uh, I looked this up yesterday. It's 7.5. Um, uh, I, you know, it, it it's, it's going to meet somebody where they are and it's yeah. going to change their life. You know, like it doesn't matter what we made. It, it's not uh, like, oh, look at us. We're so great. It's a everybody needs different things at different points. And our book is going to be that point for somebody. And that is so fucking crazy to me. Yeah. Like I I don't quite I, I, I haven't quite processed that yet. Like I for a long time, the way I kind of justified um continuing to create work e even though the universe was telling me that nothing positive was going to ever happen with this because there is no such thing as an overnight success and anybody that is doing anything creative has just miraculously overcome a wall of rejection um which is definitely my story like the amount of times i've i've uh gotten uh emails or letters or whatever that's like ah no thanks I don't, I couldn't even tell you. Yeah. Um, and I used to say, you know, there's this very famous, well, not even very famous, but he's, he's, a, he's a somewhat renowned cult actor. He's been in a lot of B movies. 
uh, named Robert Zadar, and he had a he had a, a malady called cherubism, where his body thought that his jawline needed calcium. So over the course of his life, his face warped, and his jaw got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And he used that what is objectively a terrible thing. You know, I mean, it's it's we interact with the world through our face, and when something happens to our face, it can profoundly alter our social standings, our ability to give and receive love, our um, sense of identity. And Robert Zadar used this malady and this, this thing that happened to him that was out of his control to make entertainment and to be in films and to provide people a sense uh, of, of a greater understanding of the, of the human condition, even if that's just getting lit on fire in Maniac Cop 2. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. we, all, we all provide a certain service. And for him, he provided me a very potent, you're not alone. The world's fucked up, bad stuff's gonna happen, but we're, we're all in this together. Um, and I'm obsessed with him and I've seen almost every movie he's been in. And, um, you know, Maniac Cop 3 is one of my favorite movies of all time. And, um, and, uh, and basically, that was the rubric for many years of ah, if I could just, if I can be Robert Zadar for one other person, then I'm good. I've done that. Uh, you know, I've, I've succeeded in life. Um, and now the odds are that we definitely will have done that, which is really fucking weird, you know, just by the nature of the book going out so wide, like, it has nothing to do with the actual quantity or quality. It's just the fact that it, or I guess it's, it's quantity, not quality. Like the book is in the ecosystem now. And that is what I have not come to terms with yet because I still don't, I can't think of myself as anything other than like a shitty self-publisher. Yeah, <laughs> even, yeah. even though I'm objectively not. Like I worked on Star Trek and Nicole worked on Batgirl and we have a book coming out next summer from Simon & Schuster, like the, the biggest, oldest publisher on earth. Like... I'm objectively not a shitty indie kid. And yet I, that's so ingrained in my identity from years of getting kicked in the teeth. I don't know that that'll ever leave. Yeah. No, yeah. Like the, the imposter syndrome becomes a real thing real fast. Yeah. And the, I think that the delineation I would draw there is that like, it's not that I have a doubt in my ability because I feel like imposter syndrome is like you're kind of like do I deserve to be here do I not is it am I am I capable of producing work at a high level that maybe it's ego but but that's not even what I am necessarily describing it's more kind of a you have to let your past self be murdered by your current self so you can move forward in the timeline you know yeah, it's yeah. just that was my identity for so long because there was no other option and now maybe there's an option is mm -hmm. like what the fuck does that mean <laughs> uh last question before we wrap up is from a listener patrick asks if there's any chance of more fuck off squad comics <laughs> we uh we were pitching some and uh they they did not go uh i think that we will probably do more in the future but i'll let i'll let nicole take the official answer nicole what do you think yeah, I mean, I think the likelihood of us never revisiting those kids is pretty low uh, because they're very dear to our hearts, both in that we just genuinely love the characters. And I mean, I don't know if people who know us from later on would understand this, but that's kind of what has made 
our careers or my career is those books are the reason that I got attention from DC. They're the reason that I fell in love with drawing comics. Um, so I think there's a lot that we have that we can still say with them. Um, it's more that, you know, books just take so long to make. Yeah, for we've sure. Got, we've got a lot of ideas. Um, so we're, we're working on some other stuff right now, but I think someday in the future, you will probably see some more Fuck Off Squad. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show and talking to me uh, about everyone is too open, just about your guys's like creative relationship and the stuff that you like that inspired the book. Um, where can people find you in social media? And other than everyone is too open, you can find in probably any bookstore currently or order it through any bookstore currently. Uh, what other stuff are you guys uh, have out that you want to promote? Um, so Dave and I have a book coming out next year, um, which is called, uh, Forest Hills Bootleg Society, which Dave mentioned it's coming out from Simon and Schuster. Um, so that will be out next summer. Um, and that'll be in bookstores everywhere, but we also have Fuck Off Squad, which you can either get from either of our websites or from Silver Sprocket. Um, I have Shadow of the Batgirl, which is a DCYA book, um, about Cassandra Kane. Um, and then you can find me on NicoleGu.com, which is last name is spelled G-O-U-X, or Twitter at, at NicoleGu and Instagram at, at, at N-Goo. You can find me uh, on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram at xDaveBakerX. Um, uh, you could buy a lot of those comics that Nicole listed and a bunch of other comics that I self-published, like Action Hospital, Shitty Watchmen, Shitty Dark Knight uh and uh vicky the wonderful and a bunch of other stuff uh at heydavebaker.com um and if you want to listen to me talk about weird or obscure topics like um how napster ruined the music industry or uh why andrew wk is a fictional character or how stan lee is a villain you could do so on my podcast that i make with my co-host andrew price deep cuts which is available uh wherever you get your podcasts yeah that see when now you told me that you have a podcast i'm like oh i got something to listen to now because that's all i do when i work is listen to podcasts yeah if you're uh, if you're into weird weird or obscure stuff i think you'll probably like it um we also do a lot of comics stuff um and uh we even made a musical episode we made that that napster episode is a two-hour musical with 11 original songs that my co-host and I sing um so yeah there's a there's a lot of weird weird stuff in this world and not enough people talking about them uh for this show you can find it on twitter at y comics pod facebook at y comics podcast uh you can email me at y comics podcast at gmail.com if you have a question for a guest want to be a future guest on the show or have a story about how comics impacted your life that you want right on air you can reach me at any of those places uh the logo for the show is done by andy manley who you can see working on the simpsons currently and the banners are done by my friend steven the theme is join the restaurant by davis and zetsy and remember everybody captain america did punch nazis <laughs>